If you turn to your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, our scripture reading will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The Apostle Paul has written here to the Corinthian church, a church that had its share of struggles. And here he writes to them about the unity of the church as well as its diversity, the necessity of each and every member as well as each and every member's significance. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we begin reading on verse 12. The Word of God reads, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, but I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members each one of them in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would speak to us, and that you would open the eyes of our heart. May your spirit illumine our minds, grant to us understanding, and help us, Father, O oh God, in our weakness to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the more popular stores around here in the Seattle area is a store called Ikea. They're building a new building down there in the Renton Kent area. Many of you are familiar with it. It's a Swedish furniture store, and it seems like almost anything you purchase there that is a furniture requires some degree of assembly, except for the you know, kitchen utensils and the meatballs. 
You've purchased some shelves, you've purchased some furniture, you've purchased some chairs or whatever it may be, cabinets, and when you go to pick it up, you know how it is. You get it all in these flat cardboard boxes full of planks, parts, and little dowels. And when you get it home, you, like a happy child, open up your boxes and you put together this adult version of Legos. Well, as you open the wordless cartoon book of instructions and you're trying to follow it, you scratch your head and you get to work on this workmanship of a piece of furniture. But as often is the case, when especially if you've bought cabinets or other pieces that have a, a lot of pieces, you've broken a doll or you've tried to stuff a particular piece into a hole that doesn't fit, You've lost a part somewhere in the carpet, or maybe your child has walked off with it. Well, whatever it is, your brand new desk or shelf is now tilted. You're missing some of those wooden pegs. Well, fortunate for you, when you go to customer service down there in Ikea, they have all these little bins in which they have all these little spare parts, extra dowels, extra pegs, screws, etc. And you grab some, and you go home, and you finish your masterpiece furniture. And you're very happy. You know, there's a team of researchers from three universities that have identified a phenomenon which they call, quote, the IKEA effect. The name comes from millions of Americans who have, for whatever reason, felt an affinity for IKEA because the parts, of course, they get to put together themselves. In a series of experiments, these researchers have had participants assemble furniture from Ikea and fold origami projects, build sets of Legos, and the study concludes this, quote, Participants experience the increase in valuation of self-made products. They saw their amateurish creations as similar in value to the creation of experts. In other words, they found that when people get personally involved in a project, we have a greater affection for the end product, even if we know it's not perfect. One of the researchers put it this way, imagine you built a table. Maybe it came out a little crooked. Probably your spouse or your neighbor would see it for what it is, a shoddy piece of workmanship. But to you, that table seems really great because you're the one that created it. It's the fruit of your labor, and that is really the idea behind what they have found called the IKEA effect, unquote. Well, what's true, you see, about building a piece of furniture or shelving or a desk from IKEA is probably true somewhat about the church as well. When all of the parts and all of the people function as it is, as should be, and all of the instructions are followed from the Word of God, you'll find that there is piece of God's church that looks and works as it should. But not only that, there's great joy, there's great satisfaction. Even the pieces that you might not ever see are part of God's project. And even though it may be imperfect, as we all know that all churches are, there's great affection when everyone takes a part. But what's true as well is that in most churches, all churches, there are lots of people, people who are gifted, people who are essential, people who are important, that are perhaps just missing. Perhaps they're like the ones that are in the parts bins that are just waiting to figure out how they can plug in. And there's a lack of usefulness sometimes. And there are some who think, well, I'm not important. 
Or there are others who might judge others and say, oh, they're not important. Well, that's like looking at a little hairpin or a dowel in some project that you might have, and you think, oh, they're so small, it's obvious, they're not very important until finally when that desk is put together, for some reason it's just not stable because it's missing something. Those two attitudes that say, I'm not important, or the attitude that says, you're not important, are the two attitudes that Paul addresses here in this particular text. When he likens the body or the church to the body, the body of Christ, made up of all sorts of members with all sorts of gifts. And last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, where our walk with the Lord was characterized, which be characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience and tolerance, being diligent to preserve the unity of the church amidst diversity that we find as the church grows. And I thought I would focus today on this particular passage because it talks about some important things that we need to be mindful of, that the church is both one body, it is to be unified amidst this diversity, and that each and every person of the body of Christ, each and every Christian is important in the body. In the Corinthian church, they had major problems with this issue. Right off the bat in chapter 1, there were factions and divisions. People said, I follow Paul, and others say, I follow Paulos, and others said, I follow Peter, and others would say, I follow Christ, etc., They came to the communion time, and they all were very selfish, bringing their own food, eating and watching, while others had nothing to eat for themselves. There were were those who would prop up the more visible gifts, and in pride they would promote themselves. There were divisions and factions, jealousy that would happen. The passage today speaks to every single person in the church, because every single person who is a believer is a part, an essential part of the body of Christ. Even though some may feel as if they're not so important, the Bible says you are important. You're important, even if you don't feel like it, because God has gifted you, and God has granted to you a special place in the body of Christ. But even though we are each important, it's not about us as individuals. It's about the body of Christ. It's about His church. No matter who one is, whether you're a person who is a Christian for a long time or a younger Christian, you are all a part of the body. It doesn't matter what physically you can do. Sometimes God has a special place for everyone, or I should say always He does. In 1967, one of the individuals that I've always admired. Her name was Johnny Erickson Tata, and you've probably heard her story before. She runs a ministry called Johnny and Friends, but in 67 she was injured in a diving accident at the age of 17, leaving her a quadriplegic with minimal use of her hands. And it took two years of rehabilitation, but she re-entered the community and began a ministry that ministers to millions over the number of years in which they struggled with their disability. And she writes, so much of our Christian walk is focused on self. How will this trial refine my faith, improve my character, or fit a pattern for my good? 
Often when believers speak of a personal Savior, they mean a Savior who is personally committed to their health, success, and life fulfillment. But such a view couldn't be farther from the truth, unquote. It's a struggle today in our culture because of the individualism that is so pervasive. We look at ourselves and we see ourselves as someone who is independent rather than seeing ourselves as having to need others or perhaps even serving others, sacrificing ourselves for others or being others-oriented. We are so inclined to serve ourselves or desire. What is it that I want? What is it that I need to learn? What is it that I am blessed by? And we think to ourselves in terms of I, me, and my, as opposed to us, we, and our. And when there's division, it's always because, or often because, people are so very concerned about me. And so Paul corrects the perspective of the Corinthian church when he answers these rhetorical questions, or he poses these rhetorical questions, because he says that there is unity even in the diversity of the body of Christ. And every one of us needs others in the body of Christ. And so he begins here in verses 12 about the unity of the body of Christ. For even as the body is one, it says, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. They had been struggling with division and pride, as I mentioned before. And Paul begins by reminding them that the church of the body is the body of Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus Christ is unified as one, so too is the church to be. And they were one because they were spiritually baptized into the church through the Holy Spirit. And the first thing to note is that we have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. This happened in the past. Note it says, we were all baptized, past tense. These things happened to us already in the past. The second thing to note is that all Christians have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul speaks to the entire church here. This baptism happened to everyone. This spirit baptism happened to everyone, as Paul wrote, to everyone. All, it says, were baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greeks or slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. And the third thing to note is that all true Christians are unified. It is because it is a baptism by Christ with or by the Holy Spirit, not of the Holy Spirit. And that's an important distinction to make, with or by the Holy Spirit. You were baptized by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. It is not a prepositional phrase which says by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't baptize you when you were baptized in water, you were baptized with water or by means of the water. It wasn't the water that baptized you. And that's an important distinction because it's not just a matter of semantics. It means that you and I were baptized by Jesus Christ with or by the Holy Spirit because some Christians will teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they will teach that 
It is something that happens to you after some period of time, after you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes upon you later, and it will show itself in the speaking of tongues. In fact, just yesterday, I turned on the TV, and I was listening briefly to this well-known teacher, this well-known TV preacher, talk about how he was so very proud of the fact that they were still preaching the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of that through the gift of tongues. Now, the Bible does teach we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, but it occurs at the time of salvation. As Paul has spoken of here to all of these believers, they were all baptized, and it was something that happened in the past. Now, some will say, well, what about the book of Acts? What about the book of Acts? Because a number of times in the book of Acts, there are people, one or more individuals, who receive the Holy Spirit after they came to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. So why isn't it the same thing happened today? They will point to those examples and say, look, these individuals, they came to faith in Christ, they found out about who Jesus was, and later on, they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and there was a manifestation of some type. In three out of the four cases, they were manifest, there was a manifestation of the gift of tongues. So how do we understand that? How do we understand that and explain that when someone says, isn't it supposed to be like that today? Well, we have to understand a couple of things because as you who have been studying in hermeneutics know, context is king. And so we look at the context and we look at the context of the purpose of Acts. Now, Acts, of course, was written by the apostle or by, by Luke, by Luke who wrote the book of Acts and he was detailed and chronicled the things that happened. It was a historical narrative of what happened in the spread of the gospel. That's well attested to. And then the thing that we look at when we look at a narrative when we look at a narrative account of the early church, which chronicles the history of the church, we have to ask ourselves, is the narrative that is there, is what has happened descriptive of what's happened, or is it prescriptive for the ongoing church? Is it prescribing that this is supposed to happen? Are they patterns that we are observing? Or are they principles that we're to follow? Is it a narrative, or is it normative for the New Testament church and the church today. And taking a narrative section of text, taking a narrative portion of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, and saying that this is supposed to be normative today is not good Bible interpretation. It is not good Bible interpretation because in the narratives, even in the Old Testament, you'll find all sorts of things that happen that are not normative today. From narratives, though, we may find good patterns, principles that we might be able to draw as a generality, but the question is, is it supposed to be instructive or prescriptive for us today, or is it merely descriptive? So now in these particular four instances, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, 10, and 19, where people have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, and later on the Holy Spirit came upon them, how do we understand these particular instances. Now, it's important to understand that these four cases, these four cases are clear, are clear examples of four particular classes of people that the Lord gave us in the book of Acts to answer the following question, because this question was a lingering question in the Jewish mind. 
And the question was, how do various people fit into God's plan of salvation? How do four categories of people fit in relationship to God's plan of the Messiah coming and the hope of salvation? Because each of those four chapters, in each of those four instances, there are four groups of individuals that come to faith in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit later. They are the Jews, the Samaritans, the God-fearers, and the Gentiles. They are the Jews, the Samaritans, the God-fearers, and the Gentiles. In Acts 2, it is the Jews. In Acts 8, it is the Samaritans. It is Acts 10, it is the God-fearers. And Acts chapter 19, it is the Gentiles. The Jews, as you already know, were very, very ethnocentric. They were very ethnocentric. They believed that simply because they were Jews... Because they were born a Jew, they were going to heaven. They were, they, the worst Jew was better than the best Gentile. They were very, very ethnocentric. And so in their mind's eye, when Christ came and when, when there was salvation that was preached and when people began to realize that the Messiah had come and they had come to faith in Christ, they had these lingering questions. What about people who are non-Jews? What about people who were Samaritans? And Samaritans, you see, they were people who had Jews, who had intermarried. Jews had intermarried with those who were non-Jews, and they had children, and, and so they were of mixed ethnic descendants, and they were Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't at all get along. That's why it was such a shock when the disciples found Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Because when they would go from south to north, they would avoid the area of Samaria if they could. And then there were the God-fearers. The God-fearers were Gentiles who had come, who had come, and they began to, they had turned to God, and they began to practice Judaism to varying extents, and some would do everything except for circumcision. And lastly, there was the, the group of Gentiles. The Gentiles were anybody that they'd consider non-Jews. They were just pagans or, or people who were outside of the kingdom of God. So the question in the Jewish mind was, what happens to all of these other, other people? What happens to them? What was going to be their spiritual relationship to God? Would they be included in the kingdom? Would they... Would they be included if they turned to the Messiah? And what was interesting, what is interesting is that in each of these four cases, 2, 8, 10, and 19, they are examples of each of these four categories of people. Each of these four categories of people received the Holy Spirit after they received salvation. And with the exception of the Samaritan account, which was in Acts chapter 8, in each of these cases, there was a manifestation of speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, which it doesn't mention tongues, there's an assumption that there was some type of demonstration of the Holy Spirit which came upon the Samaritans subsequent to that because in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, there was a man named Simon the sorcerer so who saw that the Spirit was bestowed upon the laying of the hands of the apostles after they had laid hands, and he offered them money. He must have seen something, some demonstration, some visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, such that he offered money to the apostles wanting to buy the power that would come. 
We assume that perhaps it was just as the other cases of the speaking in tongues. But why were all of these accounts given to us? It's because it answers this very question. What happens to all of these people? Will they be included in the kingdom? Will they be included in the, in the church? And in each of these cases, in each of these cases, the Holy Spirit was given later in the presence of the Jews, in the presence in particular of apostolic authority. There was an apostle that was there who would witness that the Holy Spirit came upon a Samaritan or came upon the Gentiles or came upon the God-fearers. And they would come away and say, God has brought the kingdom to them. They too are a part of the church. They too are a part of the kingdom. If they've come to know faith in Christ and we lay hands and pray on them and the Holy Spirit comes and they speak in tongues, they too are included as a part of God's promise of a Messiah and have received God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is too why the sign gift is known as a sign gift. It was a sign. It was a sign. So it wasn't an instruction to the church to get baptized by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, those are the only four accounts in those chapters that that occurs. But it was to confirm to the Jews in the leadership that they too, those who were God-fearers and Samaritans and Gentiles, were also included in the body of Christ. And you'll see that too when Paul writes in the book of Ephesians how there is no, no distinction that there are those who are Jews and Greeks, slave or free, those who have come into the kingdom of God has brought salvation and all people from all walks of life are part of God's church. And this confirmed to the Jews that that was the case. It wasn't to instruct the church. It wasn't an instruction for the church to get baptized by the Holy Spirit later on in their Christian life. It was a sign. It was a sign for those who were Jews that they would understand that salvation was brought to all peoples. So, he says, in fact, now that you're a part of Christ's body, individually members of it, God has appointed Every member, and every member is of one body. Every member is one body because the Spirit of God has baptized us into the body of Christ. When you came to know Christ, it is past tense, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. No matter what your background is, if you've come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has brought you into one body. And what this means is that it changes our view of people when we come to faith in Christ. When we become a Christian, whether a person is living in this country or our neighbor or in our church and we go across the world someplace where we meet another believer, they are our brother and our sister in Christ. Doesn't matter if we've known somebody for 25 years and they're one of the nicest people we know if they don't know the Savior. They're not a part of God's family if they haven't come to Christ. Those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord are on the same side. We fight the same spiritual battle, and we will spend eternity with them. So when we meet somebody that is a believer, 
there's an automatic kindred spirit with them, isn't there? There's an affinity because they are a part of the body. They're an important part. They're an essential part. They are a part of the body, and we are to be one. We're unified by the Spirit of God. But there's diversity. There's diversity, and Paul speaks of that because there are two objections. One that says, well, I'm not important, and the other objection says, well, you're not important. And he begins by explaining and answering in rhetorical questions, verses 15 to 17, that every member is significant. Every member is significant. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason, any less a part of the body. The point here is that no one can say, well, I'm not important. I'm not important because God has put you here. God has put you in the body of Christ, and you have a place in the body of Christ that is so very important. People cannot say, well, I'm not an I. I'm not so-and-so up front or visible, or I'm not a member of the worship team, or I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just young, or I, I'm, I just can't do much, or I'm not as gifted as they are. No, you're just as important. You're just as important in the church because people can easily think to themselves these things when they begin comparing their gifts and their role with others and say, I, I'm not so important. I might as well drop out. I might as well just quit. Nobody's going to notice. That's how the world wants you to think for themselves. If the world looks at that, that people have different roles and therefore those roles, some are just not important. Well, the church functions differently because it is the body of Christ. Every member is significant. Every member is important. And secondly, God, verse 18, sovereignly places each member in the body. God sovereignly places each member in the body. It's by no accident that you are saved. God drew you to himself. It's by no accident that you are sitting here. It is by God's sovereign design that you are here. And God has sovereignly placed each and every person in the body of Christ with differing gifts, with differing gifts, so that you can function in the body as God has intended. Verse 18, God has placed the members just as He desired. He has sovereignly placed you here. He desires that you be here, and He desires that you would function in the church as He has designed. You're important. Just like a, a jigsaw puzzle. You ever put together a jigsaw puzzle, and for some reason you're missing a piece. We used to have one at home for a long time. It was this round jigsaw puzzle, and there was always a piece missing. And my mother, she would, she would put glue on it and put it on a piece of cardboard, and we hang it up. But there's always, a, for some reason, your eye would just go to that missing piece. Every member is important. Every member is important if the body is to function the way that God intends it to the way that it's supposed to, efficiently. You know, there's a YouTube video I watched recently. It's called Formula One Pit Stops, 1950 and Today. It's posted last year. In 1950, IndyCar, you know, Indianapolis 500 car pit crews, they consisted of four men, including the driver. No one was allowed to get near the car except this small crew of specialists. A routine pit stop to replace two tires and fill the tank with gas I watched it. You sit there. It takes over a minute in order for them to do so. 
and the guy is hacking away. I don't know what they did. I think they had some sort of thing. They would hack away at the hub in order for this one single guy to pull off this tire. Today, there's a crew of 11, excluding the driver. Now, six are permitted direct contact with the car, and five serve as behind-the-wall assistants, and a full-service pit stop to replace all four tires, adjust the wings, and top off the tank. Now, that takes less than eight seconds. And now, when you look at a Formula One pit stop crew, which are even bigger, sometimes involving over 20 people, you watch this thing. This car pulls up, and they're able to do all of these things when everybody plays their part in less than three seconds. Very fast. All four tires come off, four tires come on, gas is filled, off they go. When the church is carried out by a small handful of people, it takes a long time. But praise God, when everyone has their part, and everyone functions as they are, then things work amazingly different. So amazingly different. And the important application of this is that God has placed you here, that you are significant to the body of Christ. God intends that all Christians be a part, an active part in contributing to the work of the body of Christ. If one member doesn't contribute, then the other members have to make up for that member. Many times when we talk about serving the Lord, whether it's in the local church here or maybe you serve in a parachurch ministry or whatever it may be, many times there are things that come up. People say, well, I, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy to serve the Lord. I'm too busy to reach out. Or I have so many other things on my plate. I'm too busy to read my Bible or whatever it is. I'm too busy. You know, in the ancient days when the king of Siam had an enemy that he wanted to torment, I read, he wanted to torment and destroy another enemy the king of Siam, you know what he'd do? He'd send them a gift. He'd send them a gift. It was called a white elephant, a live albino elephant. And these animals were considered sacred in the culture of that day. And what would happen? The recipient had no choice but to intentionally care for that gift. And this elephant would just take an inordinate amount of time and inordinate amount of resources energy, emotions, finances, and over time, that enemy would destroy himself because of the burdensome white elephant gift. I guess that's maybe why you have white elephant gifts, because they're really useless many times. But the enemy has done that. You think about our own lives. You think about some of the things that in and of themselves may not be bad. Maybe it's a timeshare condominium. Maybe it's a new hobby. Maybe it's a season ski pass. Maybe it's home improvement. Maybe it's some sort of summer cottage. Maybe it's a new boat. Or maybe it's a health club membership. You used to get up early in order to read your Bible. Now you get up early and you go work out. Maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a big boat you've got to take care of. But no longer do you serve the Lord and read your Bible because this other thing has taken its toll on your life, this white elephant. Maybe you got nomophobia. Do you know what nomophobia? Nomophobia is the fear of being without your phone is on the rise. Do you know that? You know, the average person I read just yesterday checks their cell phone on average 34 times a day. 34 times, you know? If you figure out seven hours of sleep, that leaves you 17 hours, and that means you check it every 30 minutes for many people. That's average. You used to meet for discipleship, you used to study the Bible, but now you've got your blank that has made life so much more busy 
for you, this white elephant. But most often, you see, that's not the real reason. The real reason that we struggle with being a part of the body is that there is an issue with the heart because we've set up an idol in our heart that we've bowed down to. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's this whatever it is. We want what we want. We want our own schedule. We want our own priorities, things that will take our attention, things that will be on our own agenda rather than the agenda of God. The heart of it all, it's not a matter of time most of the time. It's a matter of desire, priority. We wake up and make time for the things that are most important to us. We make time for the things that are most important to us. God has called us to be a part of the body. The sad part of our culture is that we are so very consumer-oriented, aren't we? We're so consumer-oriented when many see the church like a gas station. They drive up, they fill up, they wave to friends, and then they're on their way. That's the common philosophy of many churchgoers today. Coming to be served rather than to serve, coming to be catered to, the church is where you come to just meet needs that you have. But you see, you are necessary. You are necessary, and you are important to the body of Christ. Every person is important. Every person is necessary. And that is what Paul addresses secondly here. The person who at first says, well, I'm not important, and then he addresses the objection of those who would look at others and say, you're not important, verse 20, verse 20, where it says, but now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, and again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Every member is necessary, and God honors each member so that there is no division, God honors each member so that there is no division. We're so very independent, aren't we? So very independent, we think that we don't need others. We don't need them. I can worship God on my own. I don't need anyone else. I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough. I'm, I'm a solid Christian. I don't, I don't need to get together or have any accountability. I'm more mature. I've perhaps gone to seminary or had training or whatever it may be. I don't have need to be a part of the body in any sense that is active. You know, when I was in seminary, one of the things my professors taught me that was so very important of a lesson was I hear where these, these godly professors who knew the Scriptures well, they were teaching us, and any questions we had, they seemingly had all of the answers, or at least the vast majority of them, but their priority was still the local body, the local church. And every professor that I had there in seminary was scores of students. They could have said, you know what? I love this parachurch ministry. I'm fine. They trained pastors. They trained missionaries. But they too, I can't think of a single one that wasn't involved in their local church as a pastor or as a Sunday school teacher or as a church board leader or maybe a Bible study leader or something like that. Because it's the church, it's the body of Christ, it's the institution, the only institution in the New Testament that God has promised to bless, and that is the church, the body of Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, we need one another. We need each other. 
There's a lot of people perhaps who have had training or had a lot of education or have years of experience, whether it's in the mission field or in the pastorate or whatever, yet they still need others. They need the fellowship. They need to be a part of the body. And others need them. I need you. You need me. We need that Christian Sunday school student that may not be behaving as he or she ought to. We need that Christian who is backsliding and causes us to reach out to them. We need people. You look in front of you. You perhaps don't know the people who are sitting around you, and yet you need them. They are important in the body of Christ. If everyone was, looked like one person, if everyone had the same gifts as one individual like yourself or like myself, so very sad the church would be. But God has made the body diverse such that there is mutual need. There is mutual need. We need others in the body of Christ. That may be a different thought because sometimes some would say, well, you know what? I wish they weren't here or I wish that they wouldn't think of me in such a way or whatever it may be. I don't need them. I'm fine on my own. I don't need anyone else. And you think to yourself that way. Paul answers that question, verse 21, when he says, oh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Do you ever say that to yourself? I don't need anyone else. I'm fine. Or even if I'm not fine, I don't want your help. There's no place in the church for ignoring others or divisions. No place for not accepting other people's giftedness. No place for jealousy or envy of the achievements of others. No, every person in the body of Christ is necessary. And God, it says, especially honors those members who are not as honored. In the church at Corinth, there were a number of people who had miraculous gifts, gifts of prophecy, gifts who were of apostleship, or gifts of a, a prophecy or apostleship or tongues, more showy gifts, and they were out flaunting their gifts as if it were more important. No, all the gifts are important. Paul specifies that. You know, someday when we are all in heaven, we may be surprised at those who receive the greatest reward. Because one of the criterion, I believe, found in Matthew 19, 29 to 30, reminds us that it is those who give the level of sacrifice as a standard, the level of sacrifice for Christ. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much, will inherit eternal life. Many have given their lives to serve the Lord, or many have given their lives because of persecution. Their sacrifices will not be overlooked by God. Every person is important. God cares about the motivation of the heart. Not how much we do, but the motivation of the heart. And He calls us to function as He has created us to function in the body of Christ. And God sees and He honors all faithful Christians and their gifts in an equitable way. Why? Verse 25, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. No division. No division, but equal care. People have various roles in the church, and people have an equal or various challenges. 
That's why verse 26 is there. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Because if we see ourselves as one body, one church, we see somebody who's hurting as our brother and our sister in Christ, when they suffer, our hearts go out to them, and we pray for them, and we comfort, and we encourage them, because in our hearts, they are family. They are family. And if they're celebrating, if they're at a wedding or there's some sort of celebration, our joy goes out for them. Maybe they have achieved something. Maybe they have grown. Maybe they have an answered prayer. Why? Because they are family. Do you look at the church as a family? Do you look at the church as, I am an important part of this body? I am an important part of this church. Or do you look at the church like a gas station where you drive up? You're encouraged and you just say goodbye. Is it a priority? Is it a priority? When you think of things that the church has, do you think to yourself, well, you know what, it might not be the thing that I particularly think might be needful in my life, but I want to go because others need me. Maybe others need me and they need the encouragement, so I will go for the sake of others rather than saying, hey, it's all about me and it's something that I feel it will help me. Do you think like that? Christmas is around the corner. And then you know, according to the Harvard Business Review, they did an article in 2013. And like many of you, you'll probably be looking for gifts for your friends or family. In the Harvard Business Review, it tells us that about 40% of shoppers at least two years ago, will purchase a department store gift card. Do you know that? And another 33% of shoppers will give a restaurant gift card. Well, according to the Journal of State Taxation, the typical American home has an average of $300 of unused, unredeemed gift cards. In fact, between 2005 and 2011, $41 billion of gift cards went unused. You think, what a shame. What a shame. It's even more sad, isn't it? The Spirit of God has given to us as a body gifts, gifts to be used. Gifts to be used to bless the body, and maybe a lot of them aren't being used to bless, to build up the body. Maybe they're just sitting in the bins waiting. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a part in the body. No one can say, I am not important because the Word of God says you are. In fact, God has called and placed you in the body. No Christian can say, you're not necessary. No, because God has said they are. In fact, you need them. You may not know it, but you need them. And each and every individual is important in the body of Christ. No matter who we are, we're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We all are growing in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God has sovereignly gifted each and every believer that is here, and we can rejoice. And we can have great satisfaction when the body functions as it ought to, because there is one body, the church, and we are to see ourselves as part of the family of God. Let's bow together in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the diversity of the body of Christ. And Father, someday, someday, O oh Father, it will be even more diverse. As we see, O oh Father, the nations gather before your throne in heaven, that you have redeemed people from every tongue and tribe and nation on the face of the earth who come together to worship, to celebrate, and to bring you glory. And Father, what a glimpse of it we have here. And we pray, God, that you would use each and every person that is here. May you, O oh God, bless them as they are, as they surrender themselves to you as an instrument of your grace, looking to see, O oh Father, how they might be a blessing to others because of the gifts that you have given to them. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.